Welcome to episode 11 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. My grandfather's longtime partner in the NYPD was Richie Seberg. Seberg's legend loomed large in the Toth house. His daughter Maureen was a young writer at the Staten Island Advance, the local paper. After learning of my desire to be a writer, Maureen mentioned to my mother that the paper was introducing a new feature called the Teen Advance, which would be a six-page insert in the Sunday paper, written entirely by local teenagers. Having recently turned 13, I just barely made the cut. I was immediately given the job of music columnist, and was promised carte blanche to write about anything I wished, and the paper would reimburse me for any album I bought that I ended up reviewing. My mother took me straight to the mall after the initial meeting at the Advance, and I chose the debut album by Cycle Sluts from Hill, Pungent Stench's Been Caught Buttering, and Ugly Kid Joe's As Ugly As They Want to Be, dutifully retaining the receipts as instructed. I immediately got to work reviewing the albums, listening to them again and again, poring over the lyrics and liner notes. To the Staten Island Advance's credit, over the course of a few weeks, they published all of the reviews I submitted. The elders at the Advance, of course, trusted my judgment, having no reason to believe that Pungent Stench wasn't a popular band all the kids liked, as opposed to what they actually were, which was an obscure Polish thrash metal band that few people in the U.S. had even heard of. I had a byline and a photo taken of me looking dorky in a tie. Having recently received confirmation, I decided to professionally use my new adopted middle name. Accompanying every article I wrote would be a photograph of me above my new mouthful of a professional moniker, James J. Aloysius Toth. You pretentious fuck, teased my dad. One day my editor at the Advance told me, your stuff's really good, and I'd like you to expand your reach a little. What's something else you'd like to write about? A subject dear to my heart, with memories still lingering of the PMRC's campaign of demanding that the music industry attach warning labels to albums they deemed offensive, was censorship. Perfect, said my editor, who offered me $100 to write about my feelings on the subject of censorship. The subsequent article, Freedom of Speech, Even If It Hurts, would be my first published op-ed. I was encouraged by my editor to reach out to some of the other teen writers on staff, and was provided the phone numbers of several other contributors. Because she was the only other staffer on the teen advance who wrote about music, I decided to call a girl named Kara Mossberg, who was 17. Is this Kara Mossberg? I asked into the phone in my thick New York accent, cringing. Jesus, I sounded like Archie Bunker. Yes, she replied. Is this James? Kara and I talked for a little while, but it soon became clear I was out of my depth. I admitted to her that I was only 13, and she found this amusing. We agreed we would try to get together to go to a concert sometime. She told me she was getting her license and that she and her friends would pick me up the next time Cycle Sluts from Hill played. Of course, we never spoke again. The Teen Advance, never a popular supplement, would be discontinued the following year. But by now I had the bug. Stipends for free music, local renown and relationships with cool people were very attractive perks. Best of all, actual adults had for whatever reason deemed my opinions about pungent stench and censorship worthy of disseminating to a wider public. This was affirming to say the least. I mean, salaried professional typesetters were being employed to transcribe and format my words into the paper's layout. 
school teachers and firefighters and secretaries would actually be perusing my evaluations of Ugly Kid Joe while they waited for the bus. Precious ink and paper were sacrificed for the cause. Had I fooled everyone? So now in addition to wanting to become a bass player in a famous thrash metal band, I equally wanted to be a music critic. But before I dreamt of being either, my ambition was to become a dunker. In Laurel and Hardy's classic 1934 Christmas film Babes in Toyland, which is known in certain markets as March of the Wooden Soldiers, characters convicted of thievery and other crimes were cruelly sentenced to a public dunking, wherein the accused person is strapped to a chair, which is then subsequently submerged in water. This was a direct reference to the archaic dunking stools, used to mete out discipline, usually to women, as far back as the 17th century. Doling out this punishment were henchmen referred to in the movie as dunkers. Something about their sense of duty and cool black masks appealed to me. I announced to my mother that I planned to become a dunker when I grew up. You can be whatever you want, my mother assured me. A few years later, the infamous 1978 Mondo cult film Faces of Death, a pseudo-documentary which purported to show actual on-screen deaths, made the rounds among my peer group. I felt squeamish watching certain scenes that vividly depicted slaughterhouses and traffic accidents, but became rather taken with a segment featuring an interview with a dispassionate French mercenary for hire, referred to as Francois Gordon. When I kill, Gordon said in a thick and phony French accent, it is for business, not for political nor even social value. Intrigued, I asked Nanny for a book about assassins, and she took me to the bookstore to get one. Like my parents, Nanny encouraged me to read anything that interested me, assuring me that it didn't matter what I was reading as long as I was reading. The book I chose featured short biographies of assassins, ranging from Lee Harvey Oswald and John Wilkes Booth to Sarhan Sarhan and Jim Jones. When my sixth grade English class was tasked with the morbid but evergreen junior high school assignment of pre-writing our prospective obituaries, rather than write about how the future James Toth had become a famous author or musician, I filled the essay with a list of accomplishments common to the resume of a trained assassin, referencing by name many of the mercenaries, maniacs, and political assassins from the book Nanny bought me. Now, I didn't actually want to be an assassin, but I thought these facts danced off the page a bit and gave my obituary a little more pizzazz. Nowadays, I'd likely be expelled from school for writing such a thing, but instead, my would-be epitaph got me out of math class and led to more writing gigs. It occurs to me only in retrospect that my assassin essay was obviously the reason my English teacher, Mrs. Orock, sent me to see Miss Kaplan, the school guidance counselor. Because this appointment meant missing Mr. Nadelman's excruciatingly dull math class, I was all for it. Miss Kaplan had large, owlish eyes, and wore over her cowl-neck sweater large, conspicuous pendants. She was reputed to have once been a close personal friend of David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. Her office was thick with the musk of microwaved vegetable soup. Miss Kaplan introduced herself and we exchanged pleasantries. I'd come to identify and even relish the charmed expression older people made as it gradually occurred to them that they were dealing with someone they thought was precocious and bright. Miss Kaplan told me she read my essay with great interest and calmly asked what else I thought I might like to do with my life besides committing political murders for hire. I mentioned that I'd like to become a musician or maybe an author and that I wrote poetry and song lyrics and music reviews. She asked if I could visit her again the following week, and if I'd be willing to bring some of my poetry and music criticism. Assured that I would once again be excused from math class, I happily agreed. 
These meetings continued over the course of many weeks, and Miss Kaplan and I became friends. She was very encouraging of my work and told me I showed great promise as a writer. What do you think about the two of us starting a writing group, Miss Kaplan asked one day. The seeds for such a group, I later realized, had long been sown in Miss Kaplan's imagination, and she had already assembled in her mind the masthead, populated exclusively with students cherry-picked from the roster of misfits that had been sent her way for discreet psychological evaluation. Miss Kaplan, very shrewdly appealing to my desire for exclusivity, sold me on the idea immediately. Once I agreed to her terms, Miss Kaplan asked how I felt about allowing other aspiring writers and artists into the group. Of course, I said I didn't mind. I later learned that Miss Kaplan had used this same tactic on each individual member of the group, allowing each of us to believe that we were second in command. We planned to hold our first meeting right after Christmas break. Lunch period at Intermediate School 7 was held in a standard, large-sized cafeteria. Two adjacent rows of eight rectangular fiberglass picnic tables were separated by an open space where the lunch line would form. Each class had its own table, and students sat with their own classmates until the latter half of the period, at which point they were free to move and join their friends at other tables. Lunchtime was proctored by the inimitable Mr. Delia, a gruff Italian-American straight out of central casting. Mr. Delia looked like a person more likely to beat a confession out of a perp than preside over a large cafeteria of young teenagers. The combination of the lunchroom's gymnasium-like acoustics and the murmuring bedlam of 150 13-year-olds pent up from being shushed all morning required Mr. Delia to have a cordless microphone, which he'd used to relay to the students, table by table, when their turn came to line up for lunch. Given his totemic microphone and his placement at the center of the room, Mr. Delia was kind of like a variety show MC. When Mr. Delia happened to witness a student engaging in any type of misbehavior, he would place his mouth close to the microphone and command that student to step out. Stepping out meant leaving your table and friends and spending the remainder of the lunch period humiliatingly standing against the wall in penance. It wasn't difficult to run afoul of Mr. Delia. I mean, if you spilled your milk, for example, unless it looked convincingly enough like an accident, you were asked to step out. Because the student body was large, and Mr. Delia was unfamiliar with the names of individual students, he would often invent nicknames on the spot so as not to be misunderstood. You, he'd bark to a newly coiffed student, with the hair, step out, you're on detention. You, he'd shout at a boy trying to disguise the fact that he was shooting dice, Mr. Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, step out, you're on detention. I'm probably not doing this accent justice. The way Mr. Dilly would pronounce the word detention with a heavy emphasis on the second syllable made him sound almost exactly like comedian Andrew Dice Clay. It was almost worth getting caught engaging in some misdeed just to hear what kind of insulting epithet Mr. Delia would bestow upon you. It was in this setting that I first encountered Paul Levero. Paul was in class 6-4, and I was in class 6-8, which meant we ate lunch four tables apart and had very little reason or occasion to mix. On this day, however, after accepting my friend Russell's invitation to join his class's table halfway through the lunch hour, I found myself sitting across from a pale-looking character with dark red hair and a scowl. Think young Johnny Rotten. Now, in the pecking order of Intermediate School 7, Paul and I were probably about the same rank. Not necessarily Herbs, but 
Given our esoteric interest and lack of sports acumen, definitely not members of the upper crust. Now, since there exists no greater hatred than that between two equally unpopular teenage boys, Paul and I took an immediate dislike to each other. I don't remember who levied the first insult, but before long we had both risen from our benches on opposite sides of the picnic table and began issuing threats neither of us had any intention of carrying out. Our respective friend groups, taking note of the altercation, began howling and cheering us on, which had the intended effect of escalating the fight. Now Paul and I were shoving each other, comically, across the large cafeteria table that separated us. Mr. Delia spotted us almost immediately. Hey, he barked, pointing at us. Frazier and Ali, step out, you're on detention. Carrying with us our trays wobbly with spilled milk, Paul and I joined the other lunch hour reprobates against the wall, sneering at each other menacingly, both of us aware that, given the unofficial dictates of junior high school law, our rivalry had just begun. There was no turning back. The fistfight between me and Paul was thoughtfully arranged by our respective peer groups. After-school fights were a daily event, and typically occurred in one of three locations, either on the schoolyards of PS55 or PS42, or at the third stop of the homeward-bound school bus into Eltingville. This latter location was always an exciting venue for a fight, because the battle took place in front of the rest of the students on the bus, most of whom wouldn't have otherwise troubled themselves to attend a fight at some distant locale, like PS55 or PS42. The kids on the bus who lived closer to the first or second stop would typically remain on the bus to witness that day's main event. After all, walking the extra eight blocks home afterward was a small price to pay to see someone get hit in the face. Merely by declaring third stop while pointing at some offending person was an action equivalent of throwing a gauntlet, issuing a challenge to duel. It was understood that once this phrase was uttered, a fight was imminent. But as Paul typically rode a different bus home, the third stop was unfortunately quickly eliminated as a possible venue for our fight. PS55 was equidistant for all parties, and so it was decided that we'd meet there at 4 p.m. My friends spent the afternoon leading up to the fight ostensibly trying to boost my confidence, but couldn't conceal their selfish bloodthirst. The ultimate victor of the fight would be of no consequence. Watching a brawl would be enjoyment enough for them. Besides, our respective friends were likely to get an opportunity to jump into the fracas, turning a one-on-one -on -one contest into a rumble. There were very few fair fights. Now, I didn't want to fight. For one thing, it was early winter and the weather was already freezing cold. I couldn't imagine punching someone in weather this cold, let alone being punched. My feet felt numb in my snow boots. I wasn't sure whether or not I could take Paul, but that hardly mattered, as I knew the inevitable bench-clearing brawl would begin the moment either of us delivered a single clean shot. On the walk over to PS55 for the fight, a boy from our school named Juan intercepted us. His eyes were wild and pregnant with inside information. Paul Oliver was over there at PS55 with a big fire hose, Juan exclaimed between breaths. He has it hooked up to the hydrant and he says he's going to blast everyone with freezing water. This seemed unlikely, even after Juan assured us that Paul's father was a firefighter and had access to such things. Given the increasing cold and the possibility of being shot with pressurized ice water, though, I convinced my friends that it was probably better that we retreat. Fortunately, they agreed. We'll get him later, I vowed, not meaning it. I was relieved. 
I would soon come to find that Juan's firehose story was a complete fabrication. Even now I wonder what compelled Juan to relay such a tale, and why we all believed him. But the fact remains, Paul showed up to our fight, and I did not. The first official meeting of Miss Kaplan's writing group was called to introduce the various collaborators. This menagerie of would-be authors and illustrators included among others Andy, who had a ghastly scar and wrote children's fables, the lithe and gentle Alex, who wrote purple prose about meadows and streams, and dwarfish Siraj, who concocted light, clever rhyming verse in the style of Shel Silverstein. Our group's lone illustrator was the shy and haunted-looking Tad, whose mother, it was said, was doing time in federal prison. The final member of the group to be introduced was none other than my arch-enemy Paul Lavero, who was, Miss Kaplan said, an aspiring poet just like me. Paul's gaze was cautious and apprehensive in Miss Kaplan's office, but it wasn't hateful. Great, now we had something in common. I'd like to say that Paul and I, young gentlemen poets that we were, called an official truce, as narrative might dictate, but we didn't. Instead, we simply acted as if nothing between us had ever occurred. This would henceforth be our unspoken contract. Over the school days and weeks that passed, other boys would be scheduling other fights for similarly ludicrous reasons, and the feud between Paul and I soon faded from the school's collective memory. It would be years before Paul and I would ever discuss with each other the faded fight that did not occur. In the weeks that followed, our new writing group workshopped various poems, stories, and ideas. Miss Kaplan contributed by reading to the group some of her own poems, many of which were for whatever reason about Bobby Kennedy. Paul's poems were good, and I told him so. He in turn commended my various ideas. We soon became friends. It was decided that the group would print a journal to be distributed at the end of the year to the other students. We called our journal Writer's Block. The cover of our stapled periodical's first issue would depict, can you guess, a quill sticking out of a large slab of cement, writer's block. One day, Miss Kaplan suggested that the group do some socializing after school, ostensibly to workshop some ideas for writer's block. Perhaps inevitably, our group ended up at the mall. I quickly found I had a lot in common with Paul, my former rival. Paul was really into rap music. Though by now I owned the obligatory handful of rap albums by the artists everyone in our peer group liked, N.W.A., Public Enemy, and De La Soul, Paul's knowledge ran deep in a way I both recognized and respected. He was opinionated, pedantic, and elitist. He reminded me very much of myself. The rest of the writer's block group soon grew restless as Paul and I pored over the various selections at Tape World. A few members of our party began to leave. Paul eventually decided to buy the debut album by the bizarrely named Fooshnikins. One of the rappers in this group is the fastest rapper alive, he explained to me and the remaining members of our group. He also raps backwards. Now this I had to hear. Our group, now dwindled to only four, retreated back to my house to hear these Fooshnikins. Not bad, I thought. Still, notwithstanding Chip Foo's admittedly impressive rap auctioneer gimmickry, the music didn't initially move me that much. That is, until track three. This, Paul told us, is the lead single, Ring the Alarm. Siraj yawned openly. Whoa, I said, my head bobbing. Now this one's good. That sample on the hook, Paul explained, reading my enthusiasm, is from a reggae song called Zungu 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 Zeng and 
Wait, I interrupted. Zungu what? Zungu 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 zang, repeated Paul, grinning. It's by a reggae artist called Yellow Man. He's this crazy albino dude with fucked up teeth, and all his songs are about how he gets all the ladies. Surely Paul is putting me on, I thought. Regardless, he had my attention. Paul was the first person I'd met at school who seemed as interested in music as deeply as I was. Though I defined myself quite strictly as a rocker, Paul's knowledge of musical genres beyond rap music was enticing. I soon learned that Yellow Man was indeed quite real, and he was just as Paul had described him. If he knew about shit like this, what other crazy wisdom could this dude impart? Paul and I, now the last remaining members of the writer's block team present, spent the rest of the day talking almost exclusively about music, only finally allowing ourselves the indulgence of small talk as we waited together for the bus that was to take him home. So, your dad's a firefighter, right? I asked him. A firefighter, Paul replied, looking confused. No. Where the hell did you hear that? Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. On the next episode, I will tell you about how I wrapped my way out of getting my ass kicked. Till then, take it easy. This is The Toth Zone.